The American Cinematographer Podcast takes you behind the scenes with the people behind the camera, from the classics to the cutting edge. Thanks for listening. I'm Ian Marks, and in this episode, I'm joined by cinematographer Patrick Capone, ASC, and ASC associate member, colorist Sam Daly, to talk about their work on the HBO Max series, Succession. Cinematography is more than just lighting for the cinema. Cinematography is camera placement, camera movement, the ability to take the audience and point them in the direction that you think they should be watching. And that's what we do so well, I think. But first, the May 2023 issue of American Cinematographer magazine is out now, with a cover story on the feature Chevalier, in which Jess Hall, ASC, BSC, discusses his camera, lighting, and lens strategies for this stylish period drama. Also in this issue, Stephen Goldblatt, ASC, BSC, reflects on his impressive career on the occasion of his ASC Lifetime Achievement Award. Bardo cinematographer Darius Kanji, ASC, AFC, caps a stellar year by accepting the ASC International Award. Industry veteran Fred Murphy, ASC, recalls the path that led him to the Career Achievement in Television Award. And the ASC salutes board member Charlie Lieberman, ASC, with the President's Award for Service to the Society. In Clubhouse news, the ASC welcomes Succession cinematographer Patrick Capone as a new member, as well as Mihai Malamere Jr., whose feature credits include The Master, The Hate You Give, Jojo Rabbit, and the series Winning Time, The Rise of the Lakers Dynasty. This episode of the American Cinematographer podcast is sponsored by the ASC Masterclass. Designed for advanced students seeking to build their skills, this five-day seminar is taught by top directors of photography in person at the ASC Clubhouse in Hollywood and nearby facilities with all necessary equipment provided. Sessions include live demonstrations of lighting and camera techniques, as well as instruction in current workflow practices. Enrollment in each ASC Masterclass session is limited to 30 students. Upcoming sessions in 2023 will take place July 14th to the 16th in New York City and in Hollywood August 7th to the 11th, September 18th to the 22nd, an online edition October 14th and 15th, and November 13th to the 17th with a special focus on shooting film. Complete details and registration can be found at theasc.com. And now, it's time for the interview. For four nail-biting seasons of succession, Viewers were caught up in the Machiavellian machinations of the powerful and wealthy Roy family, led by the bullish business tycoon Logan Roy, whose children and rivals all want a piece of his expansive multimedia empire. Think of it as the internal workings of Fox News meets the cutthroat politics of Game of Thrones, except the cutting here is done with the sharp dialogue characteristic of succession creator Jesse Armstrong's work on BBC sitcoms like Peep Show and Armando Iannucci's political satire, The Thick of It. Viewers also found themselves captivated by Succession's deliberately frenetic docu-style cinematography, captured entirely on Kodak motion picture stock. Online, one can find dozens of essays and videos dedicated to analyzing the look established in the pilot by Andri Perek ASC and continued by Christopher Knorr ASC, Caitlin Arizmendi, and Patrick Capone ASC. I'll include links to a few of those in the show notes, but for now, I wanted to fill in some of the gaps that remain in the story behind the cinematography of Succession by sitting down with Patrick Capone and Light Iron senior colorist Sam Daly mere moments after they finished the grade on the show's final episode at Postworks New York. 
Patrick and Sam, thank you for being here. Our pleasure. Yeah. We're just a short, <laughs> short <laughs> walk down the steps just to get here. Let's take a moment to introduce the two of you so people can put a name to your voice. Uh, Patrick, why don't you go first? Um, I'm Patrick Capone. I'm the one of the two cinematographers on Succession. And I'm Sam Daly. I'm a senior colorist, and I am the colorist on Succession. And the other cinematographer this season is... Kate Azermente. Patrick, first of all, let me say congratulations on your freshly minted ASC membership. Thank you very much. And Sam, you are an associate member. Yes, uh, I think Pat and I came uh, came in at the same time. Yes. Wow, congratulations to you you. too. I'm very excited about it. I just want to preface this first by by saying that I tried coming up with an angle for succession that hadn't already been thoroughly addressed in the four years it's been on TV. But movie nerds like myself are already pouring over every shot, trying to decipher its aesthetic uh, with essays and videos that get millions of hits. And your insights uh, into the process are well documented. So what is there to say about the making of succession that, that hasn't already been said? That is a tough question. I will say this, over the four years, the entire team, we have gained confidence and respect for each other, that we all push each other to things that we thought we couldn't do. So that's something that has evolved, and that's something I'm not sure has been talked about a lot. Um, What about you, Sam? I'm very proud of my work on the show and of the show. It's a, I'm a I'm a fan as well. So it's it's such a treat to get to work on a show that you're you also you would have watched anyway. But the show has been shot on film all four years, and it, it's increasingly get more get gets more difficult uh, season by season to manage the type of process with the amount of film that is being shot on a daily basis for the show, and I realized that. I don't know that any other episodics are shooting film, primarily. I know um, uh, of a few that may have done it for certain scenes or episodes, but primarily as the acquisition source. And I thought it would be really nice to remark on that and so that people can appreciate when they watch our, you know, our final episodes that you know, a lot of time and effort and craft went into making these images that were captured on film. I'd like to add to that a little bit. Sam had mentioned the fact that we're on film and the amount of film that we shoot. I mean, there are days that we shoot 30,000 feet of film. And my concern with succession ending is we have enabled smaller films in the New York area to be able to shoot film because there is an active lab that's staying above water because we shoot 30,000 feet a day. So I'm concerned with this lack of volume that will be going to the Kodak lab or, and that it might affect the film community in New York City if indeed this lab can no longer stay above water. Yeah, that always seems to be the case with especially film technology, because it's only viable as a medium as long as there's a support system there for it right? Whether that's a lab or a camera rental house providing equipment and all the film cameras that are ever going to be made have been made. It's safe to assume, right? Like Aries not in production on any new 435s and Panavision's not making any new 
cameras, uh, film cameras, that is, right? And same with labs. Same with video taps for film cameras. <laughs> but the two of you have been working on together on this show since, since the first season, right? So what you were talking about is having this evolution of the process, you know, and this relationship of working with your fellow crew members, which I'm assuming includes post-production. Uh, how would you say the, the way that the two of you work together has, has evolved? Over the last, was it? Is it now? It's four seasons, but is that uh, well? Five I mean, years? Uh, over five years. Yeah. With five, the pandemic. Hey, just, yeah. just, just a caveat is that I worked on the pilot with uh, the originating mm-hmm. DP Andre Perrick, and had to leave the show um, because I changed my my company, <laughs> and then uh, so John Crowley at PostWorks did uh, most of the first season. And then I rejoined the show at the beginning of season two. So it goes back to when I was a camera assistant on commercials, where commercials would be shot on film and then put onto a telecine, which was unusual for me because we were used to shooting on film and having a film print. So I evolved from that to where I am today. And with working with other DPs when I was a second unit DP and an operator, you learn how to attack a day, how to make a a lighting scheme, knowing that you have Sam that you can be with at the end for a DI, which, and I'm, I come in at least for one day uh, on every episode. So I know what I can quote unquote, get away with what I can, help myself with later on. But more importantly, we have such a short time to do these shows because we have a very short production, post-production schedule based on our 10 episodes. So I know that when I'm sent a lock print, I can look at it, send notes, and those notes have gotten shorter and shorter because we've been doing this for three years. And I know that when I come to the room, it's going to be a state of succession look, and then we just progress from there. So that's something that I go to work with every day, knowing that I have this relationship with Sam, and that at the end, the two of us are going to attack it together. And you'll even send me a note occasionally. It's like, we did this scene, you know, let's like look out for it in dailies. I, I want to, you know, make sure that in four months when we do the final that uh, you remember it. you know yeah that, that give it the proper you, color flag right given all of the development and digital capture technology over the past you know 10 years or not even i mean let's let's keep it within the scope of the show within the past five years uh what are some of the benefits of staying with film well well for me because of the speed we work and the daylight office scenes I love the way the film handles the highlights and gives a soft, creamy effect to the whole scene. That's the biggest thing for me, is the, um, the texture that is so easy to work with. What film stock do you use for your day interiors? When I can, I'll use the 50 daylight, but oftentimes we have to use the 500 tungsten, depending on where we are, what type of day it is. You didn't use the, uh, the 250D? I've, no, we don't use oh, the okay. 250D. I thought you did. No. As far as shooting on location versus shooting on stages, like how does that... Okay, so we have the Logan's Apartment, which is a stage, and Logan's Jet, which is a stage. Waystar is a set, but it's built on a practical floor at the uh, World Trade areas. So I treat it as a location, even though we've built the entire thing. And there was talk 
at the end of the first year that maybe they would build that set. And my feeling was if you built the set, you would have the same look all the time. I mean, we go to work and we don't know if it's going to be snowing, sunny, and it really adds to our natural look and spontaneity of succession. Being on location is just uh, a godsend. What's the difference between uh, like a 50D day and a 500T day? <laughs> if I can make it on the meter with a 50D, I'll do it because it's just so beautiful. It's so vibrant. And you didn't start using that until I think season three? Season two. Two, okay. You, season two. You brought, all right. Yeah. Um, I think I know what episode. All right. Yeah. So we were running into trouble. Well, several problems with the 500T outside. You have so many NDs in it that the operators can barely see. The video taps are terrible. And uh, it just, why were we doing that when we didn't need it? And then we, so in the first year, we were all kind of feeling our way out. This is what had started. This was the LUT. Chris Nor and I kind of stuck with the 500T. We got through the season and then we adjusted after that. How do you feel about the fact that your audience is so interested in the show, not just for its entertainment value, but for the meaning behind its craft? I'm kind of going back to what I was saying before about finding all of these visual essays and think pieces on the, the look and the style of the show. Oh, I, I'm, I'll, I'll take this one. Uh, it's really fun to, like, in real time, watch people's reactions because I know what's coming and what's about to happen. And the show is so popular. There's just a lot of love out there. It's on all, not all love. As I've, uh, the past week or so now, I'm, we're having uh, color grading critics who feel the show is a little too gray. And I realized in reading some of the posts is they don't know the difference between color scheme and color grading. And so it seems to be an overall displeasure with the muted tones and the monochromatic nature of, of some of the wardrobes. And so it's good to be in the conversation, as Kendall would say. <laughs> so uh, it, that's interesting to know that people have an opinion about what I do. But I, I can defend it all I want. For The look of the show is film. And even though it's scanned to digital, I use a proprietary film print emulation LUT to give it its really classic 70s style look. And so there's this timelessness to it. And, you know, it's not going to be poppy and glossy because it's not meant to be that way. The shooting style, uh, the lighting, it's like so many different things, dogma and cinema verite. And you know, none of it has to step on the story. Everything has to complement or enhance the story. And so that's how I, you know, I look at the color grading is I get out of the way of the performances and the lighting and the writing and help tell that story and not try to, you know, <laughs> dial up my knobs and try to get some pretty cool you know, likes on my Insta. Is that what you mean, Sam, when you talk about film print emulation? Could you just elaborate on, on what that means. That's all it is, is making it look like it was it, it was printed on film. And I, I've been using film print emulation for a long time. In my early days of being a DI colorist, I worked on one of the very first films shot on Alexa, uh, a film called Simon Killer. And we didn't know how to manage th this footage and how to make it look good. So, you know, we're going to make a print for them. So let's see what it looks like through the LUT and the DI projector. And then, you know, it looked amazing. It's the first time I saw Alexa treated as film. 
then I had an idea. It's like, why not use that same LUT, but for television and, and not just as part of a workflow for imagining what a scan negative would look like if printed on celluloid. So I've been using various types of film emulation, you know, almost my entire career as a colorist. And I think I'm pretty good at making digitally acquired images look at least filmic and not like a gimmicky plugin that you download for free. Like really I understand the idiosyncrasies of film, whether it's captured on film <laughs> or captured digitally. I, I always try to have that quality to a lot of the work that I do. Going back to the comments that people were making about the show, having a particular kind of look, regardless of how people think about it, it's, it's a creative decision. It's done in a particular kind of way, and it's very consistent throughout the entire four seasons. It reminded me of something that Fred Murphy said on the occasion of his ASC Lifetime Achievement Award for television. And one of the things he told me that's different about TV in the streaming era is that the audiences are actually more interested in what a show looks like and the people making the shows know this, which means creativity as well as craft becomes a major concern. And so from your perspective as cinematographer and colorist, can you talk about the intersection of these concerns about making a pretty picture and then there's making your day? Right. And where do those two concerns meet, like on the right. set of Succession? <clears throat> well, there's, there's a couple of things you mentioned there that, and that Fred mentioned. The difference between streaming and network television and feature film. So a lot of the business model for feature films, narrative feature films, broke. And all of the theaters were booking large action films. The brain trust, the writers, the directors, the talent fell into streaming and HBO, which became streaming. So when you say that, you know, we shoot it in a way and we create a show in a way that the audience is looking for. It's the audience that used to go to the movies and watch narrative films, which doesn't exist anymore for the most part. In saying that, billionaires cannot control everything as much as they think they can. And this is an approach we always took about the style of succession. Billionaires cannot control the weather. They not, cannot control health, things like this. So the fly-on-the-wall camera effect was the rest of the world watching these billionaires. They have no idea how good they have it. So we tried to create a very naturalistic environment of classic films that the actors had the ability to move around in. This is the most amazing ensemble I've ever been exposed to. And the operators, I feel, fall into that ensemble. Cinematography is more than just lighting for the cinema. Cinematography is camera placement, camera movement, the ability to take the audience and point them in the direction that you think they should be watching. And that's what we do so well, I think. So we like mistakes, but we like mistakes that just happen to their real life that happen a lot of times whether it's a late focus or a camera getting to an actor a moment after his word. You know, I was brought up in a classic uh, cinema business where some DP said, you know, the crosshairs have to be just to the left of the nose and this far and the headroom is here and the horizon has to be there. If you look at artwork, not there's no rules. 
You just really need to have an image that helps tell that story and more importantly, the emotions of that moment. And I think that's something that we've done pretty well. And people have picked up on. And they think they've picked up on things where they're totally wrong, but other times they oh, pick that, up. Yeah, that's fun. <laughs> they pick up Just on things that are, that are right some, on. Some great theories yeah. out there. You know, what role does um, the color grade play in uh, achieving this effect? Well, I don't step on the cinematography, and like I said earlier, uh, I I coexist with it. I have a very light touch, and I I don't use a lot of. Um, artificial tools and secondaries because I know that I could see if something's over manipulated and so I want it to feel like film celluloid going through on a telecine being broadcast to everyone that's I, it, you know it's never going to be glossy and perfect with like a commercial look to it it's verite and when I first started as a telecine colorist I was working on a lot of documentaries and so I would just sit and watch you know try to do rides on all these you know like with working on Albert Maisel's footage just oh I got to do a ride cuz you know he's now he's facing the window so it like all that came back to me as I work on this is you know all of that that documentary style that I learned you know coming up as a colorist in the 90s when you know junior colorists got all the doc work <laughs> so <laughs> I found it very easy to get sucked into the psychology of the show. And there's this kind of nervous POV quality to it. Like you're always looking through the eyes of someone who is there. You're not in the inner circle always. You're over the shoulder. You're, you're on the outside looking in, but you still feel present in the scene. And I felt it most acutely during episode three of season four. And, and this is kind of a spoiler, but not really because the show already aired. But I'm talking about the death of Logan Roy. I thought it was a really clever decision to shoot it the way that you did off screen, largely from the perspective of Logan's kids uh, on the boat over the phone. They're having the most severe emotional reactions to this news. So for dramatic purposes, why wouldn't you want to be with them the whole time? But at the same time, you also want to be with Logan. You want to know what's going on. But the camera never goes to him, not really directly anyway. And, and I was wondering um, what you could reveal about this moment. Well, there's some things we're credit for, and rightfully so, and some maybe not. So we always, Mark Mylod and myself, thought that the kids are not on the plane. They're not seeing it. Why should the audience see it? It's done very cleverly from the phone calls. So and we also had a logistical problem. We didn't want Brian Cox to be lying on the floor for two days while we shoot all around him. And also there was someone doing the chest compressions. And so we actually got a stunt person to do that, a body double. And we started shooting over it, knowing that we would do some face replacement at the end. And as we're doing it, we're realizing this looks great. This is like, we don't have to show him lying on the floor. It's the compressions in the background. It's the reaction of Tom, Kerry, the uh, Carl and Frank. It was so powerful. And Tom did such an amazing job. So that it kind of all evolved. I mean, we were talking about this scene since pre-production because we all kind of knew what was happening. How are we going to do it? Is he going to be in the bathroom? Are we going to have to take the wall out, put the camera in the bathroom? And then it all evolved the more we talked about it and wanting it to be through the distant kids, siblings, that we decided to not show Logan hardly at all, which I think worked very successfully. 
And so episode six of season four has, and this is the last season, has just aired. And, and we talked a little bit before about the process of the show evolving over its run. But to me, it, it feels very consistent that whatever deviations or changes of style were made, they were very subtle. Is there anything that you feel like you could point to? Anything that you wanted to do because this either was the right time or your last chance to try something that hadn't been done before? We, we really did not know it was the last season until halfway through the season, at least. I mean, we suspected it, but... Same here. Yeah, Jesse was very honest in saying, this is what's going to happen, but I'm not sure if I'm going to end the show or not. It depends on how I develop these siblings and the other characters after. And then he, we kind of figured out around uh, November, December that this is probably going to be it. So we didn't go into the season saying we're going to do this differently. We went into the season thinking... How can we make it easier on the cast to move around and have the freedom to use the sets and the, and the locations and act and interact with each other? And credit to our production staff, we very rarely break for lunch. So we will go nine hours, nine and a half hours straight so that the cast doesn't lose momentum for lunch that the workers are well-fed and rested. But, you know, if you break for a half-hour lunch, it's a last man through the line, it's an hour and 20 minutes. Then by the time they walk back to the set, hair and everyone has to go through hair and makeup again, you lose over two hours of that momentum. And it's very liberating to be able to do scenes from the beginning to the end without having to stop and get everybody back up to speed. And the other thing that Mark Mylod does that's really interesting and I kind of embrace, we try and do the dramatic tight shots first. And we let the cast really express themselves and develop their characters and deliver their lines. And then when everyone's a little tired and it's repetitive, we'll drop back and then do the wide shots instead of wasting all of that energy on the wide shots. How do the performances match up? then, right? Because you have method actors in the cast and you have some of them will do things differently from take to take. How do you know that the master that you're getting will cut with any of the close-ups? Well, we have no idea. I mean, we shoot a lot of film. We have a phenomenal editing staff and they find things. They magically find ways to get out of trouble. They amaze me. So as far as finding camera placements and things like that, sometimes when I'm watching, I feel as though there's a ball being passed around from character to character, whether that's through a line of dialogue or a look mm -hmm. or an inference. And, the, and, and it's, you know, it's, it's almost kind of like a tennis, a tennis match, you know, but like the camera's always on the ball. I always know who's on the receiving end of that look, of that reaction. How do you follow those lines of action? Uh, we have two phenomenal operators, and we d watch from the reading of the words every morning to the blocking of it, what little blocking we do. And there's a rhythm to the scene, and we know what the sub-stories are of the scene, whether it's Jerry and Shiv or Carl and Frank reacting, and we know what those are, and we're all on headsets, and we have the freedom, and we don't have the pressure of saying, you did the wrong thing. 
what are you doing following that actor? You should really be on the lead actor. There's none of that. What we'll do at the end of each take is we'll have a discussion. There'll be notes from Jesse Armstrong to the director, from the director to the cast, from myself to the operators, Mark Mylod and myself, or whatever director I'm working with at that time. And literally that 15 or 20 minutes in between setups, that pacing and that ball is discussed. Where do we want to be? What's the important part here? You know, and it's, uh, it's magical. Have you had the same operators for most of the run of the show? Um, not consistently all the time, but thread-like we have been. Mm -hmm. Assistants that became operators, B cameras that became A cameras. More or less like people who are familiar with these rhythms and Very much so. yeah, part of the family of crew people who have been working on the show for a while. Very who much who so. do you have operating for you primarily on season four? Gregor uh, and uh, Ethan uh, Borsak. And uh, last season, Al Pierce. So those have been the three main operators. Well, in the same way that succession writers are able to make callbacks to events and things that were said in previous episodes, do you find yourselves revisiting certain compositions or moods or, or, or color palettes, uh, maybe from a different perspective as the story evolves? There is there a, uh, a shot in a recent episode where Kendall is in his car listening to music on, on his way to work. And it mirrors back to one of the first scenes in, in the pilot. And I graded the pilot. That was my one episode of season one. So I took special attention to make sure that I got it in the same vibe as, you know, what was done in the pilot. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of reoccurring locations. I always trust the light. I don't necessarily say, well, it's got to match the way it looked three seasons, three episodes ago. That would be make it feel like it's on a, you know, on a set, on uh, a studio. So other than that, I don't think that there's much self-homage to uh, earlier episodes. I, I think one of the things that our style does is we have some iconic camera compositions that we fall into basically because of the way we shoot. And one of which that I love is being three quarter behind the person that's talking where they might turn slightly to someone on the left-hand side of frame. And instead of having coming around with the camera and covering them head on, we will shoot them three-quarter behind and then throw focus to the, a reaction to what they're saying or something like that. Those are the kind of iconic shots that you might say that they're Easter eggs that we recreate, but it's just, I think, because of where the way we shoot, these kind of fall into our laps. When you mentioned earlier about the fan presence on social media, I, there are people that find these similar frames that I'm sure was never really the intention consciously mm -hmm. in photography or in editorial to choose these. But there was one on Twitter last night that was comparing one of the shots from the main title sequence, uh, the last shot where it's behind Logan's back at a boardroom. And it's also a, a, a shot from the most recent episode with Shiv in that same position and her brothers, you know, also uh, along the side of, of the table. And I was like, wow, I didn't, right. it probably wasn't intended, but it's just, right. these are, these are the similarities that if, if the language is consistent, uh, as it has been for four seasons with succession, sometimes things sync up. Reflections. I mean, we shoot so many reflections between Waystar and other locations. So there's always that kind of, uh, 
silhouette kind of reflection and things like that. There's also the iconic shot that we love to follow someone into the room from behind and see people reacting to them as opposed to, you know, we'll come around onto their face, but we love that powerful shot from behind of this power walking through into a space. And our car shots, we, we don't rig any cars. The camera, the lights are all within the car, free driven in New York City. So there's something about a car hitting a pothole with the actor and the camera reacting to it at the same time. Sometimes people will look back and relate a lot of shots that are very similar. And then the cast does it. I mean, we, we had something just a few weeks ago where the three siblings are embracing each other. And it happened uh, in Italy at the end of season three. It happened episode three with Logan's demise. And, you know, the camera operator, you, you want to be in there with them. And the camera will just move right around to it. You mentioned um, one of the things you wanted to do in season four was to make it easier for the actors to do their job. And can you talk a little bit about some of the things that you did to accomplish this? Well, more and more... We, we changed our, um, our set, this, our stage this year. So it enabled us to bring lights a little higher in Logan's apartment and be able to have people go up and down the staircase and marry that to a location of the upstairs of the apartment. So that was kind of nice. It's always evolving where we could put bigger lights higher and push through the windows, the use of LEDs, skip bounces, all of this stuff so that we can have uh, unobtrusive movement of the actors. I think I heard you mention in one of the podcasts that you feel like LED technology is really one of like the biggest developments to come along and, and, and change filmmaking or the way that people make films. I'm paraphrasing no, you. No, no, but no, no, I understand you, what you're saying. Yeah. But uh, listen, uh, I, I love tungsten light. I love Fresnels and I love all of that. However, there's something to be said for putting something up and not having to have a grip go up with quarter or half CTO or put a single net in front of it or a double net. And then you have an iPad where you can start dialing things in. I mean, at the pace that we work in today's world, it's, it's so beautiful to be able to move with that speed and hide them very easily, Asteras. I mean, it's so beautiful. And you don't have to worry about them setting anything on fire. Well. Um, and, well, you <laughs> mentioned the pace, you know? I mean, so because you can move more quickly on set now with these new tools, are you expected to accomplish more in a day? Do you know the old saying, work expands to fill the time? So you can be budgeted for a 12-hour day, and nine and a half hours later, you find out that you finished the day's work and you know you're not going to go home. They'll find tomorrow's work or something to do. So, I mean, that's an exaggeration, but there's never enough time to finish filming. If everyone did their job, we'd never make a movie. <laughs> you mentioned also that the pace at which you work is such that you don't want to lose momentum throughout the day. And so there's virtually no downtime. Um, how do you maintain that pace while also maintaining the quality of work that people come to expect on the show? It's a challenge. You surround yourself with grips and gaffers and camera people that and post-production people that are a team and you just are very professional and that's the pace you do. And Well, I guess the question more to the point is how do you look out for each other on set? 
mm-hmm. um, when no one's taking a lunch, you know, or or taking a break. Well, we happen to have a very experienced, very humane production team. They make sure that there's food available, there's PAs. We break people as we can, and people rotate. So it's a you know it's it's a very humane and conscientious way. And there's always humor on our sets. Um, you've been working in the film business for 40 years. Something at, like that. Yeah. In New York City, uh, you've seen uh, a lot change over the years, I'm sure. What can you tell us about the New York City of succession? Hmm. Perhaps, like, I'm sure you have a very personal view of New York City. Does that find its way into the show? Well, yeah, I was born and bred here, and this is my city. Uh, that's a very tough question. I mean, I just bring my personality and my interpretation of this script, you know, every day. And I've learned from some phenomenal gaffers and cameramen and from 30 years ago. I can remember things I've learned that we might do it a little bit different, but it's the same placement of a key light or the same lens to tell a story. And I was fortunate enough to be around some phenomenal filmmaking when I was younger. Uh, who were some of the, can you give us some of the names of the, the folks that you learned from? Uh, I assisted Nestor Almendros. Uh, I've worked for Michael Chapman. Laszlo Kovacs gave me my first operating job. Tak Fujimoto. In the 80s, foreign DPs, it was not very easy for them to work in Los Angeles. It was easier for them to work in New York City on the East Coast. So a lot of the, some of the great European cinematographers were able to work on films here. Um, Andrzejczyk, I did two movies with Mirek Andrzejczyk, uh, Billy Williams. So you learned a different type of cinematography. So I was exposed to that at a, as a first assistant and a operator. And... Uh- from my experience, I, I've lived here for 30 years, and I'm very familiar with the light, and I, I just know what New York light is like at all times of day and night. Even like we were doing a scene uh, at, n- at night, I don't think we could get too into detail with it, but Pat and I, we knew exactly the different types of storefront lights that that <laughs> were on the street. We were like, okay, well, we're going to have the mix of this green and orange, you know. So like just having that, like, common experience and there's millions of new yorkers that know the the exact light (laughs) that i'm talking about but they may not appreciate it as much but yeah i just just i'm familiar with even the direction of a street if they shoot down a street like oh i know what that is i know okay that's going to be facing like northeast so this is the kind of light it's going to have during this time like just absolutely knowing the geography and the way light interacts with the buildings in New York, it's up there on the screen. And, and the way street lighting has changed, with mercury vapor, sodium vapor, to LEDs, to all of these Times Square is like an F8. I mean, it's ridiculous <laughs> the way you it is now. That. You got to ND Times Square now, you know. But do you want to ND it, or do you want to make it look as bright as it really is now, as opposed to what it was like 25 years ago? So... City lights have changed. The technology of storefronts that used to be like neon is now LED around the 
um, awning of the deli. Right, you know, spend 10 minutes in downtown Manhattan, you know, and you come to realize that that, that gray look that people are talking about in succession, like that's what it, that's what it feels like down there. Everything is just like, it's, it's stone, it's glass, and it's steel. I mean, I, I grew up in a time when you never shot at night without a wet down. It's not real. Is there anything else that we haven't discussed that you want people to know about your work on succession? I'm going to miss it. <laughs> oh, I'm going to cry now. <laughs> this was, uh, by the I don't know if we've talked about this. Uh, this is the, uh, the last session that for Pat and I. We just uh, finished his session for the finale, 410. So we're a little emotional right now. It's, uh, it, you know, it's, listen, there, we've all had jobs that we love working on them and they were lousy movies or they were really good movies, but they were really difficult to work on. This is the perfect storm. It was great people. It was phenomenal scripts. I had a voice. I'm proud of my work. Uh, we traveled all around the world and hopefully uh, there'll be another job like this somewhere. As far as your collaboration goes, um, do you think it'll continue like uh, to other projects or? It's up to how, him. How does that? Yeah, how, absolutely. How, how, does, how does that work? You know, because it's, it's still know. mostly DP driven. Yes. Um, there is, you know, there are other interests, directors, studios, networks, but for the most part, whenever I'm hired, it's by the cinematographer. As with Succession, mm -hmm. uh, Andre and I worked on several projects together, and he uh, booked me for the pilot, and here I am. Well. It's been a great run, and the show really looks amazing. Thank and you. yeah, hopefully we'll get to see some more work from the two of you uh, again in the near future. But until then, uh, thank you, Patrick. Thank you, Sam, for, for being here and talking to us about your work on Succession. Oh, thank you for Enjoy listening it. to thank me. Thank you. That was Patrick Capone, ASC, and Light Iron senior colorist Sam Daly talking about their work on the HBO Max series Succession. A complete transcript of this episode is available at theasc.com. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the American Cinematographer podcast. Let us know what you think in the comments section on the website or on iTunes. Subscribe to the show and share it with your friends. And if you want to give us a five-star review while you're at it, that would be great as well. For our latest content and exclusive behind-the-scenes photos and videos, follow American Cinematographer on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Vimeo. And you can visit theasc.com for more on the art and craft of cinematography, including articles on the latest productions, video discussions with leading cinematographers, our complete library of podcast interviews and archival stories, notes on new products and services, and the ASC store. This episode was mixed at Brick Shop Audio in Brooklyn, New York. Thank you for listening, and that's a wrap. <laughs>